how do you give an application owner that, you know, very small quantum unit of being able to buy in a particular geography or a particular market in the same way? I mean, look, one of the things that's been amazing with the hyperscalers, with AWS and GCP and Azure is you can walk in the door, swipe your credit card, start building something, have your first month charge be $3.72, you know, and then keep building and have your applicant have your charge be seven bucks. And then, you know, as you scale up and you become, you know, Lyft or Pinterest or whatever, now you're at a couple hundred million bucks. Like your spend can just scale and scale and scale with them. And that's been an amazing enabler. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where dogs have stopped burying their bones. They are now storing them in the cloud. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Well, we have some great cloud talk coming up with someone who forever changed the way content is served online. And now he is revolutionizing technology again with distributed cloud. So glimpse into the future with me and today's guest, Jonathan Seelig. In last week's episode, I talked with Jeff Chandler about cybersecurity, protecting your corporate reputation, and the evolution of the CTO role and quite a bit more. If you missed it, go back and check it out. You can connect with me this week at Dallas Startup Week right here in Dallas or online. It's going on right now with multiple tracks and over 200 sessions. So attend online or in person for free. You can register at DallasStartupWeek.com. I'm speaking on Thursday in the track for SaaS founders. So come say hello in person or virtually. I would love to meet you. Hope to see you there. Our guest this week is Jonathan Seelig, co-founder and executive chairman of Ridge, the world's most distributed cloud. He works with early stage technology companies as an investor, advisor, and board member. He was previously co-founder of Akamai, which was the world's first content delivery network which absolutely changed the internet as we know it, and is still in use today. Today's episode is sponsored by my book, Small Fish Big Pond, building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. So why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? What do exceptional SaaS companies do that mediocre companies don't? And what can SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful business lessons guaranteed to change the way you view your business and includes hands-on exercises and growth tools to get lightning-fast results. Get your copy today at smallfishbigpond.com. Use the code SASFUEL to unlock special bonus content. Hey, Jonathan. Welcome to SASFUEL. Thank you very much, Jeff. Very glad to be here. Well, love your background and how you've taken things that are normally you know, in one place and made them distributed. So tell me a little bit about how you've done that in the past with Akamai and now with Ridge. Yeah. So I've uh, worked in the infrastructure world for quite a long time now, for over 25 years. And I think that's a pretty good description of sort of where I've spent a lot of my time and, and energy is working on projects where something used to be a pretty centralized or 
sort of consolidated way of, of doing something and trying to find some new way to do that in an expanded, distributed kind of uh, architecture and giving, you know, certain improvements that are inherent in that distributed architecture. So I was one of the co-founders of Akamai, man, 20, going on 25 years ago. And when we started Akamai, if you were a content provider, the way that you dealt with the need for additional capacity, if your website became popular, is that you would call up your Sun Microsystem sales rep and buy additional servers and stick them in a rack somewhere at a data center where you were then procuring additional space. You'd call up your Cisco sales rep and get yourself another card for your router or a bigger router. You'd call up the data center and get more connectivity in the door. And it was all happening in a single place. And it didn't matter how big or how global your audience was. That was the way you tended to solve that problem. We came along as a startup and we said, hey, we have a different approach to this. We think the content providers should, in fact, use infrastructure that is distributed all over the world. It's in lots and lots of different places. There's no reason that a web you know, user in front of a browser in Tokyo should go back to the basement of one CNN center in Atlanta to get content off of a server and then render it in a browser in Tokyo. Why can't we put something in Tokyo that that same web, surfer, web, web user would, you know, would hit instead? And that sort of very big change in this architecture of how content was delivered from centralized to decentralized became this industry of CDNs or content delivery networks that we really sort of pioneered at Akamai. And the beauty was that as a startup company, you could walk into content providers and describe an architecture that inherently gave them greater scalability, greater performance, and greater reliability than they were ever going to get from centralized infrastructure. It was obvious to them why that was superior in certain senses. Now, working with a tiny little startup company maybe wasn't superior to working with a big global you know, company in, in other ways, but that fundamental value proposition was very, very strong and sort of created this industry of, of CDNs or content delivery networks. Fast forward a couple of decades to founding Ridge with my co-founders, uh, Nir and Maddie, and the way that we thought about what we've been building at Ridge is that the cloud computing world today looks a lot the way that the content world looked back in the day. Now, you're not calling up a Sun Microsystem sales rep because they're not around anymore, but you're not calling up an HP or a Dell sales rep to buy a bunch more servers and stick them in a cage somewhere. Most people are, in fact, deploying applications through you know, through the cloud, and for the most part, through the hyperscalers, through the three big, you know, cloud providers. But that architecture that is being used by most application owners is a highly centralized architecture. People tend to be in one region, one availability zone of these service provider clouds. And that's cool for a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of stuff where that works just fine. And then there are a bunch of applications out there and more and more being developed where certain, as we've started to call them at Ridge, coverage gaps exist within the, the current centralized cloud architecture. So maybe you have a regulatory constraint that you're contending with and stuff that you're doing for certain customers needs to happen in certain places. Maybe you have sort of just a business process kind of preference around where stuff resides. Maybe you have a latency or a throughput which, you know, sort of mirrors a little bit what we did at, at Akamai and the CDN space, right? How do you get performance and, and, you know, low latency to an application if every single user all over the world is being asked to go and retrieve it from, 
you know, from one point on the globe. So these coverage gaps that we that we identify, maybe you just have a service provider you really like working with in a particular geography, and you know you don't want to up and move to the hyperscalers in in certain places because there's a service provider there that does real well for you. That set of kind of modern challenges and and opportunities for infrastructure players in the cloud space is what our team at Ridge started to pursue almost four years ago at this point with, you know, again, it sort of rhymes a little bit with what we did at Akamai, this idea of, hey, it's easy to get a vendor to give you this centralized thing. There are very good vendors who will give you the one place to run your cloud computing application. Is there anybody that can give you sort of global coverage that can give you the place you really need, the place you really want, the performance characteristics that are critical to your application really functioning at the highest level? And the answer, as we saw it when we started the business, was no, there, there isn't. And so, you know, I think your way of describing my career is, is pretty accurate. I've taken things that have historically been pretty kind of centralized and, you know, and and, and decentralized them in lots of different places. I, I worked for, for a number of years, as, for 10 years, as the chairman of the board of Zipcar. You know, we did something similar there. You used to have to go to a Hertz lot or an enterprise lot in your town and they'd have 100 cars there. Well, at Zipcar, we put 100 cars in 50 places all over the city. And now all of a sudden you've got this more granular, more distributed architecture. In so many different places and in so many different industries, that architectural shift has enabled, you know, an expansion of the market, has enabled new use cases and has enabled greater functionality. That doesn't mean that the centralized stuff is bad, not at all. It just means that there are certain applications that are going to do better in a decentralized architecture. That's absolutely true. And geography has a lot to do with that as well. As we looked at expanding, we're in two AWS nodes, and uh, you know originally we were in data centers, kind of the same thing, and moved specifically so we could be in different places. But then looking at going into different countries, and you know looking at you know okay, we're going to have to host the data inside those borders. Well, now we need a critical mass of twelve or fifteen clients in that country in order to make it feasible. So we're saying no to business, or making a big investment, hoping that we can find another you know ten, twelve, fifteen to go along with that. And so the technology that you have today is really changed that model. Absolutely right. That is a big part of the value proposition that we have been working on at, at Ridge is how do you give an application owner that you know very small quantum unit of being able to buy in a particular geography or a particular market in the same way, I mean, look, one of the things that's been amazing with the hyperscalers, with AWS and GCP and Azure, is you can walk in the door, swipe your credit card, start building something, have your first month charge be $3.72, you know, and then keep building and have your applicant have your charge be seven bucks. And then, you know, as you scale up and you become, you know, Lyft or Pinterest or whatever, now you're at a couple of hundred million bucks. Like your spend can just scale and scale and scale with them. And that's been a, an amazing enabler of the sort of application revolution, right? People no longer need to go buy an expensive server, sign up to host it somewhere every month. The the cost of entry of being an application developer and an application owner has plummeted as a result of what these hyperscale cloud service providers offer. What you're saying is exactly a really very good summary of what we're saying, which is, hey, what if you need that same real small quantum unit? Like, what if you want to be able to get in for a really low cost of entry to a bunch of geographies where, where those guys aren't? Well, those services, exactly. It happens a lot. They, they expand, but they do it slowly. 
Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, they expand and they do it they do it slowly because their sort of minimum unit of deployment in and when I say there, I mean the hyperscalers, their minimum unit of deployment is three massive data centers in a in a geography. And that allows them to deliver a very high level of service, tons of functionality, but it also means that you're not going to see the points on the map from them, you know, all of a sudden light up. They're not going to light up three times more points on the map next year than they have this year. Can't do it at that scale. So this is really interesting. And I like the idea or, you know, what you said about Zipcar as well. And it's, it's really that distributed network. So was this a solution that was obvious to you or was it something you found by trial and error? How did you come up with the idea and then apply it in multiple multiple places, multiple disciplines? Well, it, it became, so at Ridge, you know, my co-founders and I were really interested in this question of what will a distributed application infrastructure look like and what's it going to enable that, that isn't out there today? We got interested in it because we sort of were chatting with some folks who were specifically trying to build applications that looked like that. You know, I think the combination of my background at Akamai and and I guess, you know, when you're a, another way of saying, hey, Jonathan, for 25 years, you've been making centralized stuff distributed, I guess, is when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I just had felt like I'd seen, you know, uh, solutions in, in my business career to these problems of the application owner, the content owner, the car renter, right, wanting or potentially gaining functionality with a more broadly distributed infrastructure architecure. And so it was, a. I mean, I don't want to say it was like obvious to me how to do it, but it was clear to me that there could be a really interesting solution in that would have some similarities to stuff I'd worked on before. You know, my co-founders and particularly my technical, our technical co-founder, Nir Sheffi, had a lot of experience with distributed systems and systems that, that dealt with kind of lossy and challenging environments. And so he looked at this in a very, very sort of interesting way and also understood probably a different set of use cases than I did for where this kind of capability would be valuable. So I think we came at it, you know, pretty naturally, I guess I would say. You know, what do you actually offer? How do you get it to market? What's the perfect first set of customers to go after? All of those things are hard business questions and hard startup questions for for anybody. It doesn't matter how how many times you've done it before, but sort of seeing the path to what we wanted to build at Ridge and why this set of capabilities that we've built at Ridge to make applications much more distributed, why that would potentially be really interesting, I think came came naturally to us. Yeah. So it's really the problem was obvious, the solution you had to figure out, but you, you really knew what you were trying to solve from the beginning. Yes, I think that's a good articulation. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So starting out in this company, obviously you've had great success in the past. What are the differences in going from something like Akamai and now you're starting up again? And how do you take something that's been successful in the past and bring those experiences forward into a, a new startup? And what are some of those challenges? Yeah, well, the opportunity to try to, to build a startup company again is fantastic. You know, I'm, I was very excited to be back in an early stage, you know, operating role when we started UpRidge. It's a very different world than it was when we started Akamai. You know, we started Bridge almost 20 years after I'd co-founded Akamai. And and the signal to noise ratio is very, very different today. It's a much tougher world today to get your message and your 
brand and your, you know, kind of concept out to the market and to, to sort of, you know, get people to listen to you, to get people to reply to your emails, your phone calls, your LinkedIn messages. I just think that the signal to noise ratio is quite a bit, you know, lower today than it was 20 years ago. So, so that's a specific challenge, I guess I would say for, you know, sort of proverbial old dog learning new tricks. And I don't think that that's a, I don't, I'm not seeing that shift, you know, as I've been working on Ridge for the last while, it seems to only continue to get to be more challenging. You know, at the same time, the opportunity to really tell the story of what you're building directly and have, you know, communities of interest, just like you have on this podcast, right? Folks who care about this particular subject and this particular area of software and infrastructure services, you know, to be able to have a, a, a good sized audience that is so targeted and so specific is an advantage that we probably didn't have 20 years ago when we were trying to get our or the word out in the context of Akamai. You know, the tools that are there for distributed teams are certainly much better than they were back in the day when I started Akamai. And so that's a big, a big difference and a big change. Our team, my two co-founders are, are, are in Israel. Much of our technical team is there. Part of our go-to-market team is here in the United States. You know, I will say that the COVID years, you know, were tricky, I, I think, for me personally, less so maybe for the company than they were for me, but only because we have a lot of folks in, you know, one place and having that place be inaccessible to me for a couple of years just at a personal and a team level, you know, wasn't, I was having a lot of fun being part of a team and, and spending time with the people I really like working with. And to all of a sudden have that be on a screen, you know, all the time is a different experience. So I think that the, there are a lot of differences in building a company today from, from how it was when we started to build Akamai. What's not different is that if that fundamental value proposition resonates with a prospect, large or small, you know, a startup company, with the level of focus and the level of dedication that a company like ours has to its early offerings and to its early customers are going to, you know, really put everything they can in, into making that a success. And so, you know, I think that that's a, I remember how hard we worked for our first customer's success at, at Akamai. And I really see that at Ridge, our framework for how we think about our customers, the way that we work to support them and, you know, have them be sort of ecstatic with what we've built for them is it feels a lot like that. It feels pretty similar. Yeah, that's really good. So is that how you cut through the noise is with the, the message? Is it your your story or how is it that you, you know, it's certainly a lot louder in the marketplace today, but how do you cut through that as a startup? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know that I have a great answer on it. I think that a lot of tools that, you know, were early in their existence when we were starting Akamai are now so prevalent as to have become, you know, almost not useful in prospecting and in finding customers to reach out to. You know, the level of of distraction is just is and the, the level of distraction is really high. The level of yeah, I'm not hundred percent sure that I have a great, you know, great answer on it. Even if the phenomena of like, you know, now that we're seeing in-person trade shows and conferences and events starting up again. You know, I look at when we started Akamai, and again, I don't want to date myself so so badly, but when we started Akamai, if you went to a, a conference or a convention, you know, the people who were in the room, nobody, the smartphones didn't exist, right? So yeah, people had cell phones, they could pick up the phone and call their, you know, work colleague or their friend or their family or whatever. But 
if you were walking around, you were walking around and looking at what was, you know, around the room because there wasn't a screen to look at with a whole bunch of other stuff that, that could draw your attention to it. And so, you know, it is just a different world in terms of signal to noise ratio. And I don't know that I personally have totally cracked the code on it. We as a company are doing what, you know, modern businesses do, which is to make sure that the channels on which we are putting our messages and our communications and what we are saying there, not just about Ridge, but about our point of view on how the industry is shifting and evolving, you know, to use those tools to give ourselves the best opportunity we can to find the right prospects who will benefit from our solution. And so how does somebody know if uh, the hyperscalers are the way to go or a company like Ridge is uh, the right solution for them? Well, it's a great question. Or is it both? Are they complementary? Well, so I I was going to say, we don't believe that these solutions are mutually exclusive. What we do think, and we're big believers in, is that a lot of companies have sort of, a lot of application owners have unwittingly vendor locked themselves onto a particular platform. They've chosen to use a set of tools or capabilities or technologies within the context of the the hyperscale clouds that really makes it tough to also run your application somewhere else. But what we're seeing, you know, now... 100% true. Yeah. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing more infrastructure, more application owners who are understanding that that is potentially a risk that they don't want to, you know, expose themselves to. We're seeing more application owners who are out of the gate understanding that they might want their application to run in one of the hyperscalers and also on-prem at the same time or in one of the hyperscalers and in some other geography on a different service provider, you know, at, at some point in time. So those that inherent kind of architectural understanding that we're seeing more application owners bring to uh, to the table is a big part of what has driven, I think, these sort of standards that we're seeing out there around containerization or object storage or Kubernetes. Kubernetes is a great example of a technology that, you know, gives the application owner the ability to then run that application in lots and lots of different places. Now, that application owner might develop their application, use Kubernetes in the orchestration, deployment, and management process, and still run that application in a single cloud. They might be an Amazon customer or a GCP customer for exclusively for running that application. But by virtue of having developed it on a standard where the Cloud Native Computing Foundation says, check, you have, you, know, you have used tools that are all compliant with the standard of Kubernetes, and now you are running your application on Google's managed Kubernetes you know, offering exclusively. What that means is that tomorrow morning you can wake up and you can say, huh, you know what, I want to pick it up and move it all over there, or I want to pick it up and move half of it over there, or I'm seeing new demand in a geography where the performance isn't going to be great from over here. So I'm going to go and find myself a service provider in that market and deploy, you know, in two places, you know, that way. Once you have complied with the standard, you know that you can pick that application up and move it seamlessly. And that to me is a big, you know, shift in the market. And so 
it's, I've moved very far away from the original question that you asked, which is, you know, should an how does an application owner know if they should use this or that? My answer is that an application owner should, from inception, give themselves flexibility. The only reason you should give away flexibility is if there is some functionality that, you know, locks you into a platform that is so valuable to you, saves you so much engineering cost, gets you so much of a better result for your application than you otherwise would, that it makes sense. So lock yourself into a vendor. If it really, really makes sense, don't do it for free. Don't do it for nothing. Don't do it without getting some benefit to yourself of doing it. Like I said, it doesn't mean you're going to need to use multiple vendors at the same time. It just gives you the option. And so that's what we're seeing. I don't expect that anybody is going to pick up off of a hyperscale cloud and say, oh, we hate those guys. We're putting everything on Ridge. I do see a lot of folks who are working with hyperscale clouds who are saying, man, there are a bunch of places around the world where this doesn't work great for us. I've got a particular set of use cases where, you know, the customer who wants to do this with me really actually wants it running here, there, or there, not over here. How am I going to do that? And that multi-cloud or hybrid cloud capability, you know, is something that we are, are big, big believers in. And that's where we think that and where we see the early traction. That's where we see the early traction for Ridge. It's where I think we're going to see the extended traction for Ridge. I like that. And that's really good advice about not locking yourself into a specific hosting provider or hyperscaler or data center. Do you think that's one of the reasons that they, they continue to, to add new services and tools within there that are, are unique to their solutions is to, to keep people, you know, they want you to build on that so that you really can't go anywhere else. And it, it keeps people around long term. Is that you think that's part of the strategy? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely part of the strategy. Look, any good business should do everything in its power to lock in its customers to their service. If I could find some way to get my customers to never, ever leave me, why wouldn't I do that? That's smart. Now, you know, like I said, I'm not saying that customers shouldn't use any of these technologies that end up creating that lock-in with a particular vendor. I'm just saying do it with your eyes wide open. Do it knowing that once you've made some of those architectural choices, you won't be able to make certain other, or it will be hard for you to make certain other architectural and infrastructure choices in, in the future. So weigh the costs. I mean, know what the trade-offs are. Yeah, know what the benefit is of using some functionality that is locking you into a platform. Now, you know, I don't want to make it sound like the hyperscalers kind of uh, desire to lock in customers to their platform is nefarious in any way. Like, it's smart. And by the way, some of those tools that they're offering that are proprietary are super valuable. And if you didn't have that simple, you know, way of solving this particular problem from your cloud vendor, you'd have to spend a lot more time, energy and effort, money to build it yourself. Yeah, that's true. And uh, Jonathan, tell me a little bit about lessons learned and you know, what would you tell a, a startup founder today? to make sure that, that they're on the, the path to success or doing the right things to be successful? Well, I mean, I think that it's hard to build a company. It's hard to be successful. It, there's no, you know, I don't know that there's ever been a sort of sh a silver bullet piece of advice that, that gets people there. You, what I will say is that... I love that. There, there's no hacker shortcut, right? Yeah, I don't think there is. And, you know, and people are very intent on trying to, to find them. I If they do, I'd be happy to know what they discover because I, I haven't been able to, you know, to really put a pithy articulation around it. What I do see in today's world is that 
some of the things about building a startup that have been universally true for a long time is that, you know, early customer engagement, early customer traction is huge for a business. Evolving a product based on what the market is telling you is obviously, you know, critical. But those things are sort of motherhood and apple pie in the startup world that you hear from people. I'd say maybe the one thing that I have learned over the years of working with early stage companies is that, you know, across your team, certainly your founding team and your early team at the company, you're generally not going to fix kind of the places where people aren't awesome. And what you really want to be doing in the startup world is letting people do the things that they are awesome at. And I think that, you know, trying to sort of build a lot of new skills and a lot of professional development kind of stuff around how you become kind of better at certain parts of your job where maybe you show some vulnerability. To me in the startup world, the more valuable use of people's time and energy is to just keep pushing really hard on the stuff that they're really fantastic at. That's really smart. And, uh, and everybody working on their in their areas of strengths and having a team that is complementary. So where somebody else is maybe weaker, you have somebody else that is stronger. Yeah, and I just think it's, you know, it's a lot more uh, valuable to have someone who's fantastic at, at, you know, at a particular, has a very particular capability and is really, really good at it just to do a lot of that as opposed to, you know, trying to get them to, to fix something that they're not great at. So how do you inspire your team with your, your organization's mission? How do you get that level of commitment where everybody is pulling in the, the same direction and, and on board with the mission of the company? Well, our, as I mentioned, our sort of bulk of our team is in Israel. I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My co-founders, Maddie and Nir, are, are both based in Israel. They are, you know, right there kind of on the ground day in, day out. And especially during COVID, I've, uh, you know, found that they are the ones who are most able to do that, that work. Having part of your team, again, there are certainly companies that can be built fully remote, We've seen a lot of successes of companies being built that way. I think it's a very different kind of management capability and skill set. Our company does have a critical mass of folks in, you know, in one place. And my co-founders who are there, you know, make sure that the customer value of what we're building is articulated and expressed to our team as much as we possibly can. That's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about why building this particular feature made this customer, you know, ecstatic and gave them something they wouldn't have been able to get from other service providers out there. And, you know, it doesn't, you can't do that every day because you don't have enough, but you can have the focus of the entire team be on delivering the type of functionality that you're, that ends up thrilling your customer. That's great. But what's one of your biggest challenges as a leader, especially being a leader of a remote team? You know, like I said, I actually have, you know, at, uh, during, at some point during the pandemic, we sort of shifted the way that we've been managing the company. Maddie and Nir are now co-CEOs of the business. I'm executive chairman and chief evangelist. So my, you know, point of view has been that during the pandemic in particular, having people on the ground who in fact hold the title of CEO where everybody on the team knows that they are the sort of, you know, final kind of authority on, in how we run the company felt like the right fit as opposed to trying to do that from a long distance away. To me, the only way that I've, I think, maybe maintained some of the the, the connection with folks 
being pretty far away from them, has been just to make imminently clear to everybody that my availability is, you know, fully open to folks there. I work on any call, any customer engagement, any, you know, challenge that we have, any marketing document that we're producing that that we feel like we're not getting the messaging out on. You know, I, I think it's just all about encouraging the team members to view you and whatever your own long suits and, and strengths are as an accessible resource to them, not not a resource that is metered and marshaled and you know, I think that the one of the worst things that can happen in a startup company is if people start to say, oh, you know, oh, well, one of the founders for, do I really want to go and bother him or her to to work on this thing with me? Like, is it really, does it really rise to the level of engaging them on it? And I think that the one of the most gratifying things for me has been being engaged because we're such an early stage company with so much to do that being engaged with with a lot of different projects at a lot of different functional parts of our organization has been really gratifying. That's good. What qualities do you look for in those team members? I mean, team is something that seems like you know really important, especially being remote, having that local leadership. What are the qualities you look for in, in you know, I guess, co-founders as well as team members? Yeah. Well, you know, I think across co-founders, you're looking for a diversity of skill sets. You're looking for people who've built things, you know, on the business side and the go-to-market side and the technical side. And so I think that for me at Ridge, I like the construction of our co-founding team and the diversity of skill sets that are inherent across the, you know, across our founding team. So that to me is on the founder side, sort of probably number one, right? Just making sure that you've got that diversity of skill sets. Sort of in general, the question of how one recruits. You know, our point of view at Ridge has been that we are going to recruit people who are who get really excited about what, what they're doing when what what we are doing when they engage with us and, and talk to us. You know, the the startup market and the tech market right now are on fire, right? You can any decent engineer out there in any geography can get five job offers tomorrow morning. And you know it, it's a absolutely true. And so, yeah, and so you have to sort of as a company decide if you want to be, you know, are you going to be the highest paying? Are you going to be the lowest paying? Are you going to be the highest equity? Are you going to be the lowest equity? Are you, like, where are you going to place yourself in that in that continuum? And, and we've felt like, you know, having people come on board who are getting paid a, you know, very solid wage in the, the, the overall scale of industry averages that you see out there, but not you know we're not shooting the lights out on on that front not competing on dollars to to get people in the door um has felt like a place where you know you can really see and understand and grasp the level of motivation that someone is going to have around what they're building at the company you know before they come on board so a lot of we've sort of used used that as a little bit of a filter filter to make sure that the people who are coming in are are really passionate about what we're you know, about what we're building. I've also always felt that in the startup world, you can hire people who have already sort of done the thing that they are being asked to do at your company previously and have that experience set. And you can look at a CV and say, oh, here's the department they worked in somewhere else. Here are the tasks that they worked on and and completed. And I need someone to do those same sort of things. That's a great fit. So you can either have somebody who you can have people who are 
functionally capable of, of doing the job that you're asking them to do. And then you can have people who know your industry really well and who've been in, you know, cloud or an in infrastructure or have been around these service providers for, for decades. You know, in, in my opinion, you kind of want employees who have one of those two things. Okay. I love people who want to do a new job and experience new parts of building a business, but who know the industry that you're in really, really well. I love people who know the job really well, but really haven't learned the industry yet and need to need to do that. I think that that kind of, you know, having one of those be strong and the other a little bit less is a pretty compelling way to hire for a company like ours. I like that. I think that's a really good combination. It's, uh, do you find that people that are outside of the industry bring in different different ways of doing things or different knowledge than people that are in the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in part different ways of doing things, but it's in also in part just having people in the organization who are learning and questioning and trying to understand exactly how we do something and why we do it this way and not that way and requiring of us who've already been there for years at this point to better have a finger on the pulse of how they're understanding, you know, what it is that we're, that we're offering. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Question. Yeah. That's, we get in our own industries. It seems like we can get really stale or really fixed on, on what we're doing. And somebody comes in and says, why are you doing it that way? I don't know. That's, that's how we do it. Yeah. And so I I love being challenged and just that diversity of of ideas that makes companies really, really strong. Yeah. Well, what's next for you? Uh, I mean, Ridge is, you got your series A last year and continuing to grow and and build and scale. So, you know, what does the the future look like? Well, so for us, so for me, you know, personally for us at Ridge, having closed some financing meant that we get to kind of, you know, go heads down into this building mode and really engineer this pioneering kind of architecture for the cloud that we haven't really seen anywhere else as we've looked at the market. What's exciting about that to me is that, you know, as somebody who has spent many, many years in the infrastructure world, the thing you learn is that if you can enable new capabilities on an infrastructure, even if you don't know what those are going to yield when you develop them, if you just let them go and you let them let people start to work in those environments, you'll see spectacular levels of innovation and new things happen that you wouldn't have imagined would be able to. The Akamai certainly isn't like the reason that Netflix exists, but Netflix wouldn't exist were it not for distributed infrastructure for content that gives the internet a level of scalability and performance that you were never going to get out of a centralized architecture. Netflix would never work from a large rack of servers in Herndon, Virginia. It right. just wouldn't. Right. I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about is just the, the impact of that technology and what it enables. And so it's not just about faster internet. I mean, internet's going to continue to get faster. We're going to continue to consume that bandwidth. You know, look, I, I, the smartphone didn't make, you know, Snapchat or Uber or whatever happened, but but those companies would not have ever existed were it not for the smartphone's existence. Right. It, it's just you know, an obvious sort of, you know, truth. And so for me, one of the most exciting things about being an infrastructure, uh, you know, guy is that you do every time you get uh, done, you know, you do see the opportunity for lots of new things to happen that you haven't even imagined. And 
that is one of the big thrills, right? It's just sort of knowing that if what we build at Ridge does in fact live up to that promise of high throughput, low latency, geographic diversity, lots of flexibility for application owners to choose where stuff is going to run, new applications will get developed, new stuff will get built that wouldn't have otherwise happened. That is pretty exciting. So where can people find out more about you and Ridge online? We are at ridge.co and look forward to uh, connecting with folks. Excellent. And we'll make sure to link that in the show notes and uh, and other links as well related to, to Ridge and Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, really appreciate your time today. It's a great conversation with you. My pleasure. And wish you well in your new venture. Thank you very much. Appreciate you uh, offering to interview me today. Awesome. Thanks again to Jonathan for coming on the show and sharing your background, insights, and perspective. You can learn more about Jonathan and Ridge at ridge.co. That's .co, not com. And check them out on all social media as well. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. And one last reminder is that I am speaking at Dallas Startup Week this Thursday. It's going on right now, and you can still register at dallasstartupweek.com. Grab a ticket, come in person, or you can attend virtually online from anywhere. There are multiple tracks, including one for SaaS founders, and over 200 sessions. So it's it's pretty epic. I hope to see you there. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. And I will be sure to read these on a future episode. Leave comments, feedback, or let us know you're out there by calling 903-SASFUEL. We'll tune in next week for a conversation with Patrick Hill. Patrick is founder of Disctopia, like D-I-S-C, like Disctopia. It's a streaming platform for creatives. He is doing some really interesting things combining original content, education, and merchandising. So be sure and check it out next week. And until we meet again, enjoy the journey.